Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 366th episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're broadcasting in this, our eighth year, broadcasting across the world from the shores of Sydney Harbour, overlooking the Sydney Harbour Bridge, the fabulous Opera House. It's an absolutely gorgeous day here. The um, sun is reflecting off the harbour, lots of yachts out there. It's really beautiful. Now, everyone from small startups to major corporations are jumping on blockchain. I mean, the growth in blockchain has just been astronomical over the past two or three years. And in addition to transforming areas like data and payments, blockchain is shaking up traditional corporate structures. Through blockchain, companies can fundraise without stocks, they can operate without bank accounts, they can pay employees without even knowing their names will soon be able to create a totally ownerless company. It's interesting. So today, startups should incorporate. You know, you, you sit out and you make sure that you've got your taxes covered, tax minimisation schemes in place. You've got stock options set so that you can reward your employees. Well, blockchain companies, to build a community, only need an internet connection and a good regulatory environment. They're open source groups that manage internal funds and they do it with straight cryptocurrency. They don't need traditional bank accounts. You don't need anything really except the um, internet link. Ethereum, for example, raised funds through a public crowd sale. It backs a free floating token and operates the Ethereum Foundation as a Swiss non-profit. This means that most of its value comes from sources that operate outside the legal bounds of the traditional corporate structure. I think it's really a, a very appealing concept. So tomorrow's companies might look more like a trust that has no owner and simply uses a special legal system and dominates everything in their native token. So I think that's got a lot of appeal. Now, checking in at a centralised office is increasingly outdated. People don't like sitting in transport or in traffic for hours to get to an office. And as you know, blockchain developers are spread out right across the world in many cases, often fully anonymous. Even the team members don't know who the other team members are. There's one called Mimblewimble where the developers don't use their own names. They use Harry Potter characters as names. So nobody knows who they are and nobody knows who's getting paid what. And many major projects of employees spread across the world or they're headquartered in regulation-free financial zones like Switzerland or Singapore. And anonymity can be especially desirable for employees located in more strictly regulated locations. 
So all the usual norms like decision-making based on seniority and other internal politics will not necessarily be intuitive. New rules may have to be written into company software rather than ingrained in their culture. So in the near future, we might have blockchain companies even challenging today's big tech incumbents. They've got the ability to leverage dispersed workforces, distributed computer hardware, and new revenue streams. So ownerless companies may soon offer competitive services at real bargain prices compared with the traditional tech companies. So that's an interesting thought, companies with no owners and anonymous staff. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? I hope you do because we've now got about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It takes just 30 seconds to read every day and we tackle a different subject every day from advances in medicine. This week we've got two great articles on advances in medicine, one about prostate cancer, one about breast cancer. We talk about new apps. Um, we've got one about a brand new app too. We've got new technologies. We talk about subjects like Hyperloop, um, autonomous cars, of course, blockchain, cryptocurrency. So to keep abreast of all the new developments in business and technology, ensure that you are able to compete in this ever-changing, very competitive world, you've got to get the Bob Pritchard Daily Newsletter. It's really easy. Simply go to my website, which is bobpritchard.com. That's bobpritchard.com and enroll. Now, speaking of the advances in medicine, i got a real wow story for you now. A 13-year-old who's changed pancreatic cancer treatment, 13. An Oregon teenager's innovation could change the way doctors treat pancreatic cancer, a deadly form of the disease that is just a 7% five-year survival rate. So if you get pancreatic cancer, you're pretty much stuffed. Well, Rishab Jain, a 13-year-old from Stoller Middle School in Portland, won the Discovery Education 3M Young Scientist Channel Challenge with an algorithm that uses machine learning to help doctors zero in on the pancreas during cancer treatment. So just think of that, a 13-year-old creating an algorithm that allows machine learning to identify with exactly where the pancreas is. I mean, that, that's pretty amazing. The pancreas is often obscured by other organs, and since breathing and other bodily processes can cause it to move, it's difficult to precisely identify where it is. As a result, doctors sometimes need to deploy radiation treatment with an error circle, which ensures that they'll hit the pancreas, but problem is they kill other healthy cells as collateral damage, and <laughs> that ain't good. The Jane's algorithm helps, helps doctors locate the pancreas with precision. In the radiotherapy treatment where radiation is applied to kill tumour cells, Jane's tool tracks the pancreas in the scan itself. Accordingly, the radiation hits the pancreas very accurately, 
and highly efficiently so it can treat the tumour much more effectively. Now, Jane first became interested, bear in mind this kid's 13, <laughs> first became interested in pancreatic cancer last year during a trip to Boston and became even more passionate when a family friend died of cancer. So he learned about the low survival rate, just 7%, and how deadly this disease was. He's into programming and he was learning about artificial intelligence, so he decided to put the two together and try to solve a real-world problem using artificial intelligence. 13. I can't get over 13. Jane's software can work with hospitals' existing radiotherapy equipment, or it can be incorporated directly into new machines. He's currently in touch with doctors at both local Oregon and big-name national hospitals, including Johns Hopkins and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre, to fine-tune and implement his idea. Now, Jane's going to use his $25,000 winnings in the competition to advance his machine learning project and fund the non-profit that he created. Here we go again, a 13-year-old creating non-profits. Samyak Science Society, and this will promote STEM learning for children with limited opportunities. He also wants to raise pancreatic cancer awareness and the balance will go towards a college fund so he can study to become either a biomedical engineer or a doctor. He thinks he'll do biomedical engineering first because it's got both fields in it and then he'll go to medical school to become a doctor. Now with enterprising 13-year-old kids like this, I reckon the future world's in pretty good hands. We've all done those personality tests. I remember back at school, uh, back at high school, we had personality tests so that guidance counsellors could try to work out, you know, what we should do for a living. And they were always wrong. Um, things that I was told to do for a living, eh, didn't do any of them. And, uh, you know, I went out and got a science degree and I actually worked in a laboratory for one week and then I decided that um, test tubes and white lab coats wasn't for me. There were much more exciting, in interesting things to do. So person personality tests that I took at high school were an absolute waste of time. But guidance counsellors love them. But there's controversy among people about whether clear-cut personality types even exist at all. A new large study published in Nature Make Human Behaviour provides evidence for the existence of at least four personality types, average, reserved, self-centred and role model. So each one's based on the extent to which people display five different major character traits, including neuroticism, extroversion, openness, agreeableness and conscientiousness. So it seems like personality traits were very well accepted and established in psychometrics, but personality types were not. Maybe the reason is because there wasn't enough data. So to answer this question, researchers sifted through one and a half million responses 
to four different personality surveys with people from all around the world. They used an algorithm to sort the responses into different clusters and uncovered four personality types that appeared across all four survey data sets with disproportionate frequency. So most people track closest to the average personality type, which is fairly agreeable, conscientious, quite extroverted, neurotic, but not really very open. Meanwhile, self-centered types score below average on openness, agreeableness, and conscientiousness, but high on extroversion. Reserved individuals are fairly stable in all domains, except for openness, and neuroticism, in which they're relatively low. Role models have high levels of extroversion, agreeableness, and conscientiousness, but low levels of neuroticism. So these clusters kept showing up again and again. So looking, it's like looking at a population map of the United States. While people live all over the country, it's easy to spot the high-density areas like New York and Los Angeles and Chicago where you've got lots of dots and then you've got, say, Cleveland, Tallahassee, places like that where there's just a few. But just as plenty of people in the US don't live in New York City, Los Angeles or Chicago, some people won't neatly fit into one of the four personality types. So it's not possible to say exactly how many people people fit squarely within each category because drawing hard boundaries around them is both it's difficult and of course if you look at a whole bunch of dots on a map then it's um pretty arbitrary and people's traits change as they get older so a disproportionate number of young people for example fit into the self-centered category while older people and women fall into the role model groups so we need a lot more research yet to determine whether these results are useful to regular people, not only regular people, but employers, mental health professions, professionals, dating services. So we need more work. My guest after the break is Dutch artist Robert Dryson. He's regarded as the world's most successful art forger and one that the European authorities sought to arrest for quite some time. The police uh, sought him in Europe for art crimes. He forged some 1,000 paintings by various artists and 1,300 sculptures by the Swiss sculptor Alberto Giacometti, despite the fact that Giacometti himself produced no more than 500 unique pieces. So Robert Drayson, major art forger. He's got um, pieces in nearly every major art gallery in the world, including the Louvre. He'll be my guest in just a couple of minutes. This is Bob Pritchard broadcasting across the world this week from the shores of Sydney Harbour in Australia, and I'll be back in just a minute. Do you 
want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Over the last six years or so, we've given you insights into the lives of over 320 of the world's most interesting people. We've spoken about what they do, what makes them tick how they became known, what pitfalls they encountered along the way and how they overcame them. You know, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business and we need to receive advice and assistance from those people that have achieved success before us. So the aim of this segment is to give you information and to assist you to become successful. Now, Robert Dreesen is both an entrepreneur in a field that very few succeed at. And he's also successful having made many millions of dollars. He's also able to live comfortably in the tropics by the water, although that have not may not have always been entirely by choice. My guest today is Dutch artist Robert Dreesen. Now, Robert's regarded as the most successful art forger and one that the European authorities sought to find and arrest. But while Robert's German accomplices sat in prison, he was free until he was finally arrested and convicted. The police sought him in Europe for art crimes. Robert Dreesen forged some thousand paintings by various artists and 1,300 sculptures by the Swiss sculptor Alberto Mm, Giacometti, despite the fact that Giacometti produced no more than 500 uh, unique pieces. So the the artist only produced 500 pieces, but Robert produced 1,300. Now, at one stage, two of his accomplices were in prison in Germany, and Robert was the only member of the gang still at large. He was eventually captured, convicted, and sentenced to prison. Now, Robert spent more than 30 years forging art, including paintings and sculptures, and he's lived pretty well on the proceeds. We found him, and he's running a small cafe in Thailand, and uh, Roman Abramovich, who's the owner of Chelsea Football Club, luxury yacht is anchored nearby, so he's living in a pretty nice part of the world. Robert, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, and you're being heard all around the world. 
Thank you very much for having me. You certainly had a hell of an interesting life, haven't you? Well, some people say yes. Uh, I would agree with them. But uh, on the other hand, it was uh, stressful, forging sculptures, trying to get out of the hands of the Justice Department, which finally they won. And they put me to jail for forging the sculptures by Giacometti. So what is it that drives a forger? A forger, whether it be art or sculpture or whatever it is, is it is it the money? Is it the thrill of the chase? Is it outsmarting the so-called art experts or the authorities? Or is it something else or a combination of all of those things? Well, let's say it's a combination of all, but uh, outsmarting the, the experts who think they know it all makes me, well, yeah, thrills. If you make something, people can't say this is made by the original artist or made by somebody who hasn't got a clue, actually, but just doing it. And, yeah, that's actually my goal. It's not so much the money, because that everybody says I made four tunes. I did it. I did, I did quite well, I must admit. But, uh, no, uh, the, the, my main goal was, yeah, forging is, yeah, my passion. Yeah. Art is my passion. And I want to do forges and make it actually better than the uh, actual artist did. So how do you determine what piece of art or what type of artist you're going to forge? Do you, is that um, related to your own style or can you forge any style? I can forge any style and people come to me just because of that and they say, Robert, can you make me this or that? And that's what happened with Giacometti as well. People came to me and wanted a Giacometti. I said, well, the biggest one Giacometti made was not even three meters. I'll make you a bigger one, a nicer one, which I did and successfully sold it. So, and that's, it's most of the art that um, you forged, whether uh, uh, speaking of art being either paintings or sculpture, um, was was most of that made to order? I mean, did somebody come to you and say, yes. "Look, I've got a great private yes. collection, and I want to"? So, people, how does so, so how does so? I'm an art collector, and I'm got got some pieces together. How do I find a forger? I mean, you can't look you up in the phone book. How do I find a forger? Well, it's mouth to mouth. People know other people, and they say, "Well, if you want this or that, then uh, call Robert," and that's his number. <laughs> that's how it's. That, that's how it went in my case. That's, uh, but I, I worked for many, many people. And, uh, sure. It's not only Giacometti's. Uh, on, a, on a rainy Sunday when there's nothing to do, I'd, I'd take a book by any famous artist. And at one stage, I made 100 Emil Nolder, one of the most nicest German artists, uh, and uh, made 100 watercolors on, on, on a rainy weekend. <laughs> So, okay, another question. If if people all around the world can find you and commission you to forge a painting or a piece of sculpture, why couldn't the authorities find you? 
I haven't got a clue. Actually, I mean, everybody knew I was in Thailand. Everybody knew I was in Thailand, and nobody came to get me. So were you sort of looking over your shoulder the whole time, every morning waking up? <clears> thinking, Not really. That would be too. That would have been too stressful. But uh, yes, of course, you, 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 in the back of your head, you always know somebody's coming out and get you. But then Thailand's pretty safe because they don't uh, extradite. Uh, for like, why I wouldn't say petty crime, but uh, in my case, I think uh, forging art is not really, really uh, uh, a criminal fact, and uh, that's why they left me alone for that long. <laughs> so I had to go to Holland myself to to get arrested. Yeah, why did you do that? Well, uh, I got a son there. I've got an ex-wife there, and. You sometimes miss things in Holland or wherever, and then yes, it just went. So you went. You and went. I, I thought it was. I thought it was too long ago to to. Well, so I thought that the other two were already convicted and did their time, and I thought, well, I'm safe now. But I was wrong. You know, they have they have I things at the airport when you go through that says who you are and were you travelling under your own name or would you have a yes 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 yes. so you weren't trying to hide yeah you were actually asking me no <laughs> yes actually I actually did and then this huge sentence came and uh, I thought well if they would arrest me they'd uh, say don't do this again man but uh, I was wrong <laughs> didn't work that way okay so you began when you when you were young you began painting your own art and um, yes when did didn't you, sell <laughs> so, yeah when did you go from painting your own um, product and uh, trying to develop your way as an artist uh, when did you turn to copying famous artists to forging other people's art there, were, there was a German art auctioneer that came and said I need some Dutch or German oil paintings, like uh, in, in, in the Romantic style, the 1850s, uh, summer scenes, winter scenes. Could you do that? I said, yes, well, of course. And uh, he said, oh, please, I'll give you 25 guilders for uh, any painting you make. So that's what I did. I was 19 years old at that, at that time. So that's when I first uh, imitated uh, other artists, actually. So, if you're, um, I don't know much about um, the composition of art, but if you're if you're forging something that's 150 years old or whatever, you have to take into account the um, the the canvas on which you you're painting it and the sort of inks you use. And how do you how do you if you want to do it perfect? Yeah, if you want to do it perfect. Yes. Well, you you you, you buy an old old old. Uh, old old canvases and remove the paint that's on there and uh, start painting anew. So where do you get the where do you get the paint that it, uh, I would imagine that like everything there's been big advantages in paint over the last few hundred years or whatever. How do you how do you yeah. re- replicate the paint that was or the oil or whatever it was that was used back in those days? Well, many of the oil paint uh, is still the same, but there are some particular white colors and uh, that 
weren't available that that, that, that were different at the, at, in those times. But you can make, you can easily make them yourself. That's not so good. Right. So it, it's not only just being a great artist; it's being smart enough to determine the materials you've got to use so that you ideally don't get caught. Yes, and that's the same with uh, with, with sculptures, of course. And, and sculptures is even more difficult to see because it's uh, it's you know bronze is. If you have a bronze from today or bronze from ten thousand years ago, it's, it's still it's still bronze, right? And it's hard to find out uh, what, what 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 age it has. Yeah, that makes it easier for you, doesn't it? Yes, and as long as you do the patina, uh, the patina on it, which is uh, which is also an ancient art, uh, and if you do that right with this, with several assets, then uh, it's it's very hard to discover. So where did you learn to paint? Was that just a natural talent or did you... Yes, I think so, yes. Everybody, when I was young, everybody said, oh, wow, you can, you can really you can make really nice things. And yeah, well, and then I went to art school for a year, which which was pretty boring. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, and that first started from there, actually. So what about um, sculptor? Is that, a, is that a, another art that you just picked up? Or did you have some? Yeah, I, 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 I once, I once, I bought uh, a pack of clay, and uh, and I saw a nice torso of uh, Aristide Mayol, a French uh, artist, and I thought, well, let's see if I can make that. <laughs> and yeah, well, uh, half an hour later, it was there. <laughs> now you've so. you've just released a book, which I assume is self-published, yes. is it? It's published. Uh, it was published last last week. Yes, now, last week. My my language abilities are not great, but is it called uh, Lieberfrau L? Is that what it? Yes, it's uh, it's in English. It's it, it would have been uh, said, uh, dear Mrs. L. Yeah, I looked. I actually looked it up on Google, and it says in English it means Lady L. And I was wondering whether that Lady L stood for Lady Luck. No, 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 no. No, it's 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 a, it was a woman that once asked me, "Do you have any regret, or do you feel sorry, or do you would you would you have done it different?" And that's the, that's why the title is Leave for L, because she asked that. I wrote the book, so my book is actually I'm talking to her and explained what I did and did not, and why I'm don't have regret of most things. Of course, there are always regrets, and that's what I explain in the book. Yeah, um, I find a couple of things interesting, and I um, um, I have trouble sort of recon- reconciling it. So I just want to run through in the book. You claim that you're a victim um, because the auction houses made tens of millions of dollars compared with what you made. <laughs> but yes. you, how can you be a victim when you knew you were forging, you knew you were fooling museums and galleries and major auction houses? Um, yes, but there's a, there's a slight difference. If you sell a work of art for let's say a thousand dollars which is worth 10 million yeah. I don't really think that's fraudulent 
Okay. What people do with it, with what people do with it, bring it to auction houses and sell it for a lot of money. Yes, well, <laughs> I've done my job. I've got my money. Okay, but at the same Sorry. time, you knew when you forged something and you supplied yes. it to an auction house or whatever, you knew what they were going to do with it, and you, you know, you yes. obviously knew that they were selling it for whatever, whatever millions of dollars they could flog it for. Um, surely, at, at, at very least, you're guilty, aren't you, of being a forger? But certainly, wouldn't be a victim in my. My view. I, I, I don't say I'm a victim, but I'm not that. Uh, You're not a real bad as guy. People, as, 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 no, as people <laughs> say, I am. Okay. I think I think many people would would should should take their responsibility if they buy something like a Ferrari. You can't buy a Ferrari for a thousand dollars, can you? One wouldn't think so. Um, but no. if. Let's look at um, Giacometti's, you know, Giacometti in his life apparently produced about 500 pieces of work and you produced about 1,300 pieces of his work um, and you were brazen enough to make your own models and then cast them and stamp them with the stamps of the foundries that Giacometti had used. Now, that's... Surely that's an obvious attempt to deceive, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you justify that? is an artist and I make art. Okay. That's, that's the difference, I think. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, you also, on your, on your website, you're more or less brag about being one of the world's most famous forgers. Um, That's what they call me. I never yeah. said that myself. But uh, but you believe it, don't you? I, I'm, I'm one of the well, most, well, most known, well, most well-known uh, forgers. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there are much better ones. Yeah, but well, I'm not too bad. <laughs> I think deep down you probably think, you know, I'm really fucking good at this. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty good. <laughs> okay. You talk in the book about the sentence, the pre-justice system and life behind bars. Before we discuss the art world in general, would you like to sort of elaborate on a couple of those points, the sentence, the pre-justice system and life behind bars? Um, because for most of the, the listeners, they wouldn't be familiar with the uh, German system. Well, I, I call it pre-justice because before, uh, every, everything was already settled. Everybody was going to know. Everybody knew I was, I was, I was, I was, I was guilty, and they gave me. But there was one thing they they said it was a gang, and for a gang you need more than one, more than two, three people. The only thing, the only one um, I dealt with was this man who got seven and a half year sentence, and uh, that was that was the only one uh, I dealt with, and and and, and they would say it was a gang but it wasn't and that was most of the sentence well would, what about the people that the your immediate contacts 
was commissioned by. Presumably, he was sitting there and he had these art gallery or art auctions who would come to him and say, can you get me whatever? And uh, he'd say, okay, I'll get on to Robert and, you know, give me a couple of weeks and you'll have <laughs> you'll have your Picasso or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Surely that, that makes it much bigger than just two of you, doesn't it? Wouldn't that qualify as a um, gang? Well, well, it depends on how you see it. I, I think I, I dealt with just one man. What this man with with whom he dealt—that's beyond my 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 thing. Okay, um, for somebody who's artistic and creative. What was life like behind bars? Did you? I guess they didn't give you a paintbrush and a canvas. <laughs> well, uh, actually, I made fifty more Giacometti drawings in jail. So, but uh, I had to, I had to buy my own uh, uh, pencils and things. Yes, so, didn't get it from the state. <laughs> so you actually sat in so, jail. Um, Creating more forgeries that you could <laughs> you could um, cast when you got out. No, I just made painting. I just made uh, drawings. Uh, this is a shame, actually, because uh, I, I like sculpting more. But uh, they didn't. They wouldn't give me any of these materials. <laughs> I can't say that I really. But I didn't blame them. <laughs> I, I didn't put in uh, Giacometti's name though. Right. Okay. Um, in your book, you say that it's not the art that sells, but the story. What do you mean by the story? Yes. Well, if you ever been to an art gallery, and uh, of course there's nice things there, but uh, there's always somebody talking about it as if it was the most beautiful, beautiful thing in the world, and. That's why I say the more beautiful the story, the higher the price. It's the way of selling it, not the piece of art uh, directly. I, I explain in my book that there's a... You can make an artist. You can, you can, you can, you can buy his stuff for a couple of bob and uh, put it in an art gallery, uh, put red stickers on it and do that for a couple of, couple of years and make that artist great, big, expensive. And, and and then somebody will write about it, and then that's what that's like what what happened with Tiffany Lamps for Barbara Streisand, Teddy Bears, Michael Jackson. That's you, you could you. It depends on who buys it that makes the prices. So, are you saying that art isn't judged on the quality of the art? Well, that's very subjective, anyway, isn't it? Um, yes, but indeed. It's. Um, it's judged on how much exposure and and promotion from the right people determines whether or not that art becomes. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an absolute believer in that. Yes. But, you know, it's interesting because three or four days ago, when I was in Spain, I went to the Picasso Museum, and you know, there's a hell of a lot of good stuff there, but there's a hell of a lot of stuff that I reckon I could have painted. Um, well, <laughs> probably not, but you know what I mean. Um, so, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. So what, what, Picasso led a fairly 
you know, he wasn't that well Huge. connected initially, so he didn't have the connections to go out and promote in the, in the real early days. In fact, I think the stuff that he did when he was 17, 18, 19 was the best work he did. But um, Absolutely. So how does somebody who's unknown become that famous if it's all well, just a matter of Picasso, manipulation? Even, for Picasso, for, yes, for Picasso was even because he was a he, he worked hard. He made an awful lot of work. Yeah, true. And that's what, uh, of course, uh, these gallerist people want because the more the merrier. And um, that's what I say at the beginning. They'll uh, they'll buy his stuff because he needs money, of course. And uh, put it on the gallery, uh, get in the press, uh, put red stickers, and do that for several times. And then at a certain point, it'll sell itself. And with Picasso, because he made so much, so many things, and uh, that, that, that was easy, actually. What Did you actually think at the time, well, um, I'm pretty good at this, and, and I'm creating forgeries that are selling that um, you would paint your own uh, works or sculpt your own works alongside the stuff that you were selling? Um, I didn't have time for that. <laughs> you were too busy forging stuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, how many, okay, that, that's interesting. If you, if you, How long were you forging? I mean, how many years were you creating forgeries? Probably forty, probably forty years, something. So, and you could, you would have churned out several thousand pieces in that time, right? Yes. So, how many people are out there churning out several thousands of pieces of forged art and f- putting that art on the market? Is there a is there a whole bunch of you? Is there? A dozen? Is there a hundred? Is there a thousand? How many people are out there forging art? You're coming closer. You're coming closer by the last number. So you think there's thousands of forgers out there putting art on the market that isn't genuine? Yes. But that happened for thousands of years already, of course. But uh, the, the last hundred years, it's uh, it's become more, more and more, of course. So how do you how does one detect whether a piece of art is genuine or just some clever bastard like you has gone and painted it? How do you how do you how does the collector tell? It's it's it's, it's very 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 difficult, and I always say to people if you like a work of art and if they ask uh, I don't I don't really matter it doesn't really matter what price if you're if you're happy with the price they ask. Put it on your wall, but don't instantly look at the name that's uh, uh, under it. But uh, do you like it? Don't you? And that's that's what the prices are based on, I think. And people do so difficult about art. And it's a shame, really. The majority of people art should be for everybody. Yeah, but the majority of people who buy name art do it for. As a collector and for, that, yeah, for yeah. Um, investment reasons. So how do they tell whether something is genuine or not? And I guess, <laughs> does it matter? Well, provenance, of course. 
Providence, uh, if you, how far can you back? How, how, far, how far can you go back for, with Providence, uh, top Providence? And uh, that's always a, a thing you should uh, keep in mind. How okay. Providence. Well, you were supplying forgeries to auction houses, and they were selling them sometimes for huge amounts of money. How did they cover the Providence situation? Or did they just um, find people they, they, who didn't care? They, they, didn't, they didn't really care. So you've just they got to find really them. If you, well, if you, if, if, you go, if you go with Picasso or with Giacometti or uh, Andy Warhol or whatever, these huge, these big, big, big names, of course, they, 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 they would not uh, sell it without a provenance. But, but you were... You were everything, everything minor than that... Uh, they don't really care. But you were selling they heaps of Jacometis, weren't you? Yes, but I, I never sold them at auctions. I no, sold them to, to this one to this one man. And then he he though went on and sold. No, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't sell it to auctions, as far as I know. No. Uh, he didn't sell it at auctions also. Okay, so you're saying that people like Sotheby's and Christie's don't bother to check provenance, but they're only interested in selling the art. So, yes. do they work together? Do they work together? Or are they totally independent, or have they got a sort of a wink, wink, nod, nod, nod understanding that um, you know they'll? Well, every major, every major city in the world has a Sotheby's and the Christie's. I, I, I think that they uh, work together a bit, but sometimes not. But there was because there was two authentic Renoirs a couple of years uh, back, uh, one in London and one in. Uh, in New York, right? Suddenly came on the market because if they um, yeah. if they sell fakes and, and it becomes known, then it screws up their reputation, doesn't it? Happened many times before already. Yes, and they just get by it. For myself, I I know that at least two hundred sculptures I made were sold there. Jeez. So. <laughs> Um, the guy that was your point man who was um, buying the sculptures and things off you, what happened to him? He went to jail for seven years? Uh, he, he was in jail half, half time, same as me. And he went to Portugal. Okay, is he still in the art after, business? After a sentence. I haven't got a clue. I, 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 didn't, I didn't talk to him ever since. Okay, you're... You're a fascinating guy with a fantastic story to tell. Um, what do you, you do now? You're still producing art? Uh, well, I just finished my book, so uh, I'm, I'm still looking what to do now. Uh, I, I, I do. I'm, I'm going to write a new book, but uh, that'll take uh, that'll take me more time because uh, I'm not in a hurry anymore. I want to do this. Uh, I want to do this book, Leave for L pretty quick and I succeeded and now I'm uh, writing another one and by if people come to me and say can you make me this or that um, of course I'm open to that so and you're producing work under your own name now that I, I see yes sir so is that do they all look like um, traditional artists or are they your own flavour. Oh, if people can do a, a mixture between, if, if you want, uh, 
I just made um, a, a Banksy, uh, a sprayed of Banksy and uh, a Keith Herring. And I put under it, uh, Banksy meets Herring. So <laughs> that's what I do as well. So you, you distinguish your art now using your own name. Yes. Rather than whoever you were forging. So... Yeah, that's too much trouble. The fact that you're... And there's too many people know where the hell you are now since they caught you once. So where do, does your name have a value now? I mean, if, if somebody sees a piece of work by Robert Dresson, um, has that got an intrinsic value because you are famous and you are who you are? I, I, I did... I didn't increase the prices yet. I might in, <laughs> at one stage, maybe, but uh, it's getting too busy. But no, I still enjoy it very, very much, and I do my best. And I, I was what I did before. Also, I, I, I judge the piece on my work, on the hours I spend, and that's how I made my price always. Okay, so what's next for Robert Dresson? Write my new book about. Yeah. I want to. To England, South England, seven years every weekend to the auction houses, and there's some very funny and nice stories about that. And uh, alongside, I do some artwork. I hope you've got a good lawyer because it seems to me that you put out a book of your stories, um, the um, Sotheby's and Christie's and people like that are going to sue the hell out of you. Oh well, the, 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 the truth never harms, does it? <laughs> yeah, truth's no defence, though, is it? <laughs> well, I can prove it all. So, uh, if they want to sue me, come on, get me. Okay. So, um, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I really enjoyed it. And a very nice time. You, you can see Robert's work by going to Dressen Art. Now, I'll spell that for you. It's D R I E S S E N. ART.com. That's Dress. I would say Dressen Art, but it's DressenArt.com. And you can see some of the works that he has for sale. You can read some fascinating information. It's um, It's been a pleasure speaking to you, Robert. And I'll be back. Thank you very much. With more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Network, and we're broadcasting today from Sydney Harbour in Sydney, Australia. Now, Chinese stocks have lost more than 30% of their value since the start of this year. Now, fears of a slowing economy, rising debt, and the impact of Donald Trump's trade war have all pushed the Chinese market lower. However, 
worst could be to come because there could be a wave of forced selling of company shares because hundreds of Chinese companies use their shares as collateral for loans. And, of course, when the share price drops below certain levels, they're forced to sell. And uh, we're getting very close to that now. Now, analysts believe that this trend is likely to exacerbate the major declines that are already seen in the Chinese market. And, of course, as it exacerbates the declines, more companies have got to sell more stock, which, again, forces stock prices down. So... Perhaps the biggest financial market story of 2018 is the fall from grace of Chinese stock market, which has seen the benchmark Shanghai Composite Index drop to its lowest level in almost four years. And investors have realised that the blockbuster growth that China's enjoyed over the last decade is on the wane and things are likely to slow down to still a reasonable rate, but certainly not like it has been. All this has been exacerbated by the rise of the trade conflict between the US and China, which has seen the two largest economies in the world exchanging tit-for-tat tariffs, which now apply to goods totaling around $300 billion and affecting more than 5,000 products. And Donald Trump said today that he could uh, increase that $300 billion to $500 billion. So he certainly doesn't look like he's going to relent. And uh, the trade wars likely have a major negative impact on Chinese growth. Uh, JP Morgan said it could shrink the um, Chinese economy by 1%. There's a reason to believe that a third factor could soon come into play, forced selling. The companies that use their shares as collateral for loans and where share prices fall, They've got to sell them in order to maintain a certain level of balance in brokerage accounts, which are used to lend companies money. So according to Bloomberg, about $603 billion worth of shares have been put up by company founders and other major investors as collateral for loans, accounting for about 11% of the country's stock market capitalisation. So, More than 600 company stocks have fallen to levels where forced sales may have to kick in. So it's a vicious cycle. Share drops lead to liquidation, and liquidation leads to further share drops. So that is a vicious circle. I don't know how they overcome. And the United States have also said that they're going to absolutely want to make sure that as part of any trade understanding, currency has to be a part of it. Donald Trump for a long time has said that Beijing artificially manipulates its currency to make exports from China more competitive. And he says that China does this to hurt the US economy. Now, I'm not sure that that's true, but... If um, the United States is going to insist that um, a currency solution is required before he settles the trade war, this is absolutely going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I guess the question is, who's going to blink first? 
Is it going to be the United States? Is it going to be Donald Trump? Or will it be the Chinese? And uh, I have a feeling that Trump will probably push it as far as he can push it. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier, easier <laughs> and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. If you're always trying to be normal, you're going to always be boring. Normal is boring. And if you're always normal, you'll never know how exciting and great it is and how amazing you can be by not being boring. So I hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I'll again be broadcasting from our studios on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, in California. And this is the place where technology meets entertainment. In the meanwhile, I hope you continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.